Question for you to think about as you begin. What's the worst thing you've ever bumped into or stepped on in the dark? I searched that question online. The internet's a wonderful place, you know. And uh, there were all kinds of answers. Legos kind of topped the list. But there are other ones. Dog barf, dog poop, marbles, broken glass. Um, probably the, the one that topped the list, as far as I saw, was, was a man who was in Arizona wrote, he said, at bedtime, I had just killed all the lights and was walking into our entryway to turn off the light on the front porch when I stepped on a bark scorpion, the most deadly scorpion in the world, right here in Arizona. The little bleep, I inserted that, started stinging me between my big toe and the next toe. And it was stuck between my toes. It kept stinging and wouldn't stop. I was carrying a plastic tumbler of water that I keep at my bedside, and I threw it at my foot. Somehow dislodging enough that it stopped stinging, I limped to the adjacent dining room where we have carpet instead of tile, and I wiped it from my foot onto the carpet. If you've ever been burned badly enough by these, uh, if you've ever been burned badly enough for those big pus-filled blisters to form, I had one of those on my toe where this little bleep had deposited every bit of poison that he owned. The pain was both numbing and like fire, and it started to spread up my right leg. It continued to spread slowly until I reached to just uh, past below my groin. The pain lasted for two full days before it finally dissipated, and life returned to a semblance of normalcy. Since then, I've never been stung again. I added Alexa to control the front port so I could turn the light up there, and I wear sandals in the house. <laughs> now, there's a moral in the story. And the moral is, don't live in Arizona. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the moral is, bad things happen when you walk in the dark. Now, the Bible talks about the dark and walking in the dark as well. But it has a different kind than just the absence of photons that we might think of as the dark. In fact, uh, four times out of five, when you hear the word light or darkness in the Bible, is speaking more of a moral or knowledge blindness that's poison this world and blinded it to the true realities. And, uh, and that's what you're going to see here in the book of 1 John chapter 2. Because John is writing to people, and he wants to show them what it means to, to be in the light. So he wants to show us what it means to actually find this enlightenment, to walk in the light and not in darkness. Because bad things happen to you when you walk in the darkness. Things a lot worse than a scorpion stings when you walk in the world's kind of darkness. Things much more long-lasting. Let's pray as we begin, and then we'll look at 1 John chapter 2. Father, this is your word. I pray you would guide my words to be yours. Help me to express them clearly as they should be. Help me to be able to express them well. And remember, whatever would be helpful in that regard, to forget anything that would be unhelpful. Father, I pray that your spirit who resides in every believer here, that you would tap us on the shoulder, as it were, when the word comes to us, so that we can understand how specifically you want us to respond to it. For this is not about gaining more knowledge. This is about walking with you more, more closely. Would you let that happen today, please? Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, so last week we started First John. I'm going to go over 
just a, a very slight review of that because it'll kind of help us with this. But there's one thing I want us to get across today. So if we don't get anything else across, this idea that true enlightenment comes from walking with Jesus and loving like Jesus. So there were opponents um, of, the, of John. There were a group of people who had left the church and they were causing trouble for those who had remained. And a part of their, their spiel, part of their uh, teaching was that they were now in the light because they had all the secret knowledge. Let's, let's review a little bit then. John writes these things in order to, uh, to encourage people, the church. Some people have split off from the church, but they're still trying to influence the people remaining. Those people claim to have a, a special anointing that gave them insight into this deeper spiritual truth. And if you recall, a lot of that was focused on the idea that the, the material world is bad or evil or worthless, and it's only the spiritual things, the, the ideas that matter, and there's this great spiritual hierarchy of beings between the physical world and God. And Jesus himself could not have been God because God would not ever take on a physical body. He was, a, he was just a good man with whom uh, one of those spirits on the lower echelons of the hierarchy came upon him for a while, came upon him to teach him and, uh, and to help him do miracles. So Jesus had the special spiritual secret knowledge, and that's what they were trying to tell these people um, and they were minimizing Jesus while saying that Jesus had given them the special knowledge. Therefore, they were the ones in the light. So many of the uh, remaining believers were confused. They were wondering if they missed the boat. Now, what John emphasizes in chapter 1, then, is that Jesus is God. He is the one from the beginning. He came to this physical world. He, didn't just, uh, he wasn't just a good man who had good teaching or, or the Spirit came upon him. No, he was God from the beginning. And fellowship with God is only through Jesus, the one that God has brought into the world. Fellowship with God is also means fellowship with those in Jesus. And then fellowship with God is marked by holiness and love, two qualities that the people who had left the church completely minimized because they weren't intellectual teachings that they needed to know. And then lastly, we looked at uh, the last few verses, we will sin. Okay. So we want to walk with Jesus in holiness and love, but we still have our sin. And that's all right, because we have Jesus who will cleanse us. And that uh, kind of summed it up, and this is the heart of that. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. So people were claiming that they were walking in the light, they had fellowship with him, and Paul says, no, that's not how it works. You don't have this union with God simply by this intellectual union or, or these spiritual experiences you claim you've had. You have it through Jesus and clinging to his teaching and walking with him in holiness and love. Now he's going to build upon that here in, in chapter 2. And I said that there is one main thing to get across. True enlightenment comes from walking with Jesus and loving like Jesus. And there's two parts of this then. First, in verses uh, 1 through 6, I, th I think I would summarize his teaching this way, that we are saved by Jesus and we are saved to be like Jesus. All right. So salvation is not just from God's wrath and God's punishment, but we're saved 
to something. And that's something he just defines as being like Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful thing, by the way. We're not just objects of God's mercy, that he saves us from our, what we justly deserve because of our sins. We are objects of his love. And love, in his love, he desires to, for the best thing that could ever happen to us to be true. And that is not more success in our jobs. That is not for our prayers of this world to be answered about our health, about problems that we have. The best thing for us is to become an eternal being of love like Jesus Christ. That's what we're saved into. So let's flesh this out a little bit. And you've got this in your bulletins. It's a little bit more literal translation in order to bring some things across. And what are we told? He writes, my dear children, I write to you so that you do not sin. He doesn't want them to have an attitude like the, the people who had left, that sin doesn't matter. I want you to try to avoid sin, but if anyone does sin, and, and the way that's constructed in the Greek, he, he assumes that this is going to happen. Well, when we do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. The NIV puts that atoning sacrifice. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What is Jesus? Well, we're told that we are saved by Jesus because Jesus is the sacrifice who pays the debt owed. He talks about, we had this advocate before the Father, and we'll come back to that in just a second, but he, he, he clarifies who's the, who that is. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sin. That's probably not a word you've used today, right? Maybe not even this week. And I can see why the English translations tend to avoid it. But it's a, it's a technical word, and, and sometimes it helps us to understand exactly what's going on. So this word actually occurs only one other place in the New Testament. If you look over in chapter 4, it's right here in 1 John. In verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation and atoning sacrifice for our sins. When you look at that word, how it's used in the, in the culture of the day, you find that the most common usage, and one that fits context here, is to satisfy the wrath or the demands or the right obligations that someone else has upon us. Think of it this way. Think uh, maybe two, two people, Carolyn and Mike. They start dating, and, and Carolyn, you know, she likes Mike, but she's concerned because, you know, he, he gets a little reckless in his driving sometimes. And so one time they're out on this date, and Mike, you know, he, he thinks he can do everything. He gets reckless in his driving, and he, he's speeding, and he crashes. And he survives well, and she survives too, but she's paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of her life. She cannot resume her career. Her, her mobility is so limited. And then he finds out that Carolyn is suing him for a certain amount to help pay for her medical expenses, but also the lost income. Now, what happens here? He has done something wrong that has affected and hurt her, and now there is something that he owes her she is the one that can determine what that is. He can say, I will do this or this or this. But she is the one who has a rightful claim for some sort of recompense on his part. Think of it another way. 
a young man comes in before the judge. And this young man is found guilty of a serious crime. He's sentenced to a, a fine he could never pay. Uh, it just goes beyond what he has. Or to spend much time in prison if he can't pay that. Imagine on in the dock that day is a judge who has compassion because he's also the father of this boy. Sometimes we ask, why can't God just forgive us? Why do he have to do the cross? Well, imagine, can that judge simply excuse the penalty for that young man because he's his son, because he cares about it? No. There is a rightful response to what he's done. And as, as a judge, he has to uphold that. And that's the idea behind this idea of satisfaction, that our sins created debt before God, a legal one, not only that, but a personal one, and there's a response that has to be made. There's something that has to be paid in order for that to be made right. But the problem is it's way beyond us. There's no one righteous, no one that does good, Romans 3 tests. But what if the judge could pay that fine, empty out his own savings, sell his house, sell his car, sell everything he owns, to pay for the debt that is owed by his son. That would be a God, or that would be a father, who pays himself what is demanded. And that's what's behind that idea of propitiation. Here's the deal. That's us. You and I have accrued a debt. We have accrued uh, legal penalties because of our sin. And yet God himself, in the form of Jesus, has chosen to pay those. And once those debts are paid, then they are gone and erased. Propitiation means they are taken away. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is the one that pays the debt owed. He is a propitiation for our sin. But then let's come back to that. It says we have an advocate with the Father. So we're going to sin. Even after we're saved, we're still going to sin. What happens? Well, thankfully, Jesus is not only the one who saves us, but he is also the one who is now our advocate, speaks in our defense. And we'll put this up here. All right, what's an advocate? Well, the word there is periclete. It's the same one Jesus used in, um, in uh, John 15 to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, its normal meaning just means to someone who comes alongside to help us. The context of that will sometimes battle, but the most common context, and the one that fits here, was a legal one, someone who shows up at court to speak in your defense. You ever been in court? I haven't, thankfully. Uh, I, well, not where I myself was, but I've been sitting there watching and empathizing with someone who was in court. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if someone could speak on their defense? If someone who, who had all the insight and all the ways to enable them to escape that penalty. And that's what happens. Do you notice here, Remember in 1.8, we just looked at that verse, it says he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. He doesn't say he, he forgives us out of his mercy. Now that's true, but that's not what he says here. And then here, what does he say? Jesus Christ, the merciful, the compassionate? No, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate before the Father. And he advocates not on the basis of mercy, not on the basis of, of compassion, not on the basis of anything we've done or not done. He advocates for us on the basis of his justice, of God's justice. Our sins are brought before him in our minds. The accuser or the accuser brings it before. And Jesus says to the Father, 
This is the picture here. That's already been paid for. They can't be punished again. That would not be just. That would not be righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. That's a good thing. It says in 1.8, he will forgive all of our sins. There is no sin, past, present, or future. They are all covered under the blood of Jesus Christ because he is the full propitiation. There is nothing we can add to that. So every time we fail, we come to the Father. We say, Father, forgive me, not because I've deserved it, not because I've been good in other ways, not because I, you know this isn't quite so bad. I've got rationalizations, excuses. Other people do worse. No, forgive me because Jesus has paid the rightful penalty for my sin, and I am in Jesus by your grace. That's a beautiful thought. Third thing, though, being in the light means Jesus is, is the way that we come into that light because he deals with the darkness of our sin. But he's also the model who shows us how to live. He says, and this is how we know that we have known him. So these people were claiming that they knew, knew Jesus. They were claiming all kinds of stuff. And you can see how people might be confused. So John says, all right, well, let me give you a test so that you know that you know him. Do you keep his commands? The one saying, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, notice it goes from commands to word, and it's now singular, truly in him the love of God is made complete. That is how we know that we are in him. And then he ends up with this idea, with this summary thought here. Whoever claims to live in him ought to walk as he walked. He says, I want you to understand there's only one way to know whether you're in Christ or not here. Are you following him? Because Jesus didn't die just to save us from our sins, but to make us like himself. He is the pattern. 1 Peter 1.21 says, uh, I'm sorry, 2.21 says we should walk in his steps. Jesus, the light, brings us into the light. And the only way we can know whether we're in the light or not is if we're glowing at least a little bit. You guys remember these glow stars? You know, these are identical, made of the same material, same shape and everything. And uh, the only difference is that if I put one in a drawer and left one in the sunshine, when the darkness came, only one of those would shine. How would you know which one was exposed to the light? Well, it's easy. Which one's glowing? And that's what he tells us. There is a, a way to, to understand whether you're in the, the truth or not. It's not, you know, just whether you're a member of the church. It's not maybe your past religious commitments or experience. Are you right now walking in the light? Are you walking in his commands? And the one who does this, the one who doesn't do this is self-deceived, but the one who does this the love of God is made complete in that person. What a beautiful thought. How does that work, <laughs> by the way? The love of God is incomplete somehow? I mean, wouldn't you want to ask John that? Wait, wait, wait. There's incompleteness here in the love of God? Well, no, not in one sense. Everything that God has has been poured into Jesus for us. There's no bit of love remaining that we would earn somehow, okay? Well, the idea is something like, well, maybe I can illustrate this. When uh, Amy and I lived in Michigan, we lived in uh, the southwest part. There are a lot of fruit groves around there. And uh, so you would have migrant workers who would come up all the way from Mexico uh, to Michigan. And that's quite a culture shock, I would imagine. 
And one of these, um, we got to know a little bit. They stayed a couple times at our house when, when their place that they were going to stay at uh, wasn't ready. And it was just a trailer anyway. But And uh, so we got to be friends with them a little bit and know them. And um, they had several kids. And there was one named Jesus, or Jesus in our pronunciation. And he was about Joe's age. He was about uh, four at the time. And I remember they were visiting once, maybe second or third time they were visiting, they were going to go. And, um, you know, they had, they had nothing. They were a family of six in one vehicle, station wagon, moving from Mexico to Michigan. It's not like they had all, their, all these possessions. And so Joe took his favorite stuffed toy, this little platypus named Paddles, and he gave it to Jesus. He gave it to Jesus out of love. You know what? That's when our love for him reached a level of completeness it wasn't before. We loved our children. But when they started responding by showing that love to others, that's when we knew they were getting it. There was a level of completeness, not because we hadn't done everything we could, but because it took a while for them to understand the full dimensions of that. So I think that's what he means when he says, if we love like he does, if we keep his commands, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are to be. We are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him ought to walk as He walked. Now, all right. So He's given us these commands. He says, "All right, I'm supposed to keep His commands. What are they? And how would I keep all the commands? I mean, in the Old Testament there were 613 commands, and some of them were doozies, right? How am I ever supposed to keep all the commands of God? Well, here's the good news: you don't have to. You have to keep one command. You have to keep one command. Do you see how in verse 7, he begins talking about what these commands are, but he goes to the singular. Beloved, I'm not writing a new command to you. So it's singular. But an old command, which you have heard since the beginning. The old command is the word that you have heard. Now, as we're going to see, this new command is simply to love each other sacrificially. Now, in chapter 4, Love means that I give of myself sacrificially to meet the deepest needs of the other person. And if we do that, he says, that, that's what I want you to focus on. So I'm not writing you a new command. You've heard this before. In fact, it's in the Old Testament. Yet again, verse 8, I am writing a new command. It's new in one way. What's that? Well, first of all, it's, it's new in the depth of understanding that when we see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples the very night he was going to be betrayed, we know that there is a different and deeper kind of love than has ever been seen before. So there's a newness in the intensity. But there's also a newness in this command in the sense that this is now what's coming into this world, this kingdom of sacrificial love for each other. And that's why he says right after this, I'm writing a new command to you, which is in him and also in you, for the darkness is passing and the true light is shining. You can imagine if you're out camping sometime and, and you see the sun start to come up and, and you, you see the, the first rays of light. But because it's so low on the horizon, most of the things are still in the shadows. I, I wonder if that's what John's thinking of. The light's shining. And right now we could choose to live in the shadows if, if we don't want to be seen by the light or we can step out into the first rays. That's the idea. So it's a newness because this is what's coming. The old is passing away. So, verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light and yet hates his brother is still in the dark. 
You know, I was trying to illustrate this a little bit. Oh, I forgot this part. Sacrifice that pays our debt, therefore believe. The advocate who speaks for us, therefore confess our sins on the model who shows us how to live, therefore follow. And then this is where we're going with this part. To be like Jesus is to live in sacrificial love for each other. I was getting ahead of myself there because there's some wonderful stuff here. So in the Gnostic view, and this is kind of on the back of your, of your bulletin here, darkness was basically ignorance. And by the way, this was pretty much the same view as uh, the English and the French Enlightenment period. You know, they claimed to be in the light because they had more knowledge. So that's very much a Gnostic view. Darkness is ignorance, and by the secret teachings of Jesus and the spiritual experiences you can have, you can walk into this light because you'll have knowledge of these things. And John says, no, that's not how it works at all. Darkness is one thing. By the, you know, I talked about how it goes from plural to singular, commands to one command. In a similar way, in the first chapter, he goes from one idea of sin. If we claim to be without sin, verse 6, and then he talks about sins. There's a sin within us, a sin problem, and then there's the sins that we do, is I think the idea. What's that sin problem? Well, this darkness is simply that I am born into this world with a nature and in a society that confirms and encourages this, and, and that nature takes the form of self-seeking independently of God. I grew up in this world, and I look at you as someone who affects my happiness or unhappiness in a certain way. And if I don't grow in Christ, that's how I'm going to value you. There's a self-seeking here. So everything I do from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed is formed along this idea of what is pleasurable to me, what is good for me, what will bring my, my long-term benefits according to the way I understand them. And that's what I do. And I do this independently of God because, you know, he might tell me to do something else. And I want to do things my own way. As Frank Sinatra used to sing, I did it my way, right? Hell, it's a hellish song, actually. Um, apologies to any Sinatra fans. And when that attitude is within us, that sin attitude, it's going to result in other kinds of sin, the sins. Conversely, light then means loving others in union with God. So I'm brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what I mean by union. There is a, a, a real union that is enacted. And it won't be completed in my experience, in my understanding yet. It'll be there partially as I grow in Christ. But out of that union, one command, the one command is this, that we are to love each other as God has loved us. That we are to love each other not based on what that person has deserved according to what they've done, not according to how cool they are, how, what they look like, what, what position or what power they have, but we are to love them in the same way that we have been loved, sacrificially doing anything we can for their ultimate good. That is the one command. And then out of that flow the other commands. Try to think of a way to illustrate this. The sin nature, prideful, self-seeking, and independence from God, will bring, that's the, that's the iceberg. The tip of that, the one that you see, is going to be all these other sins, right? Conversely, 
what God is coming to do is not just make people who try really hard not to do these, those bad things, but to give us a new nature, one where the deepest part of our heart wants to be in union with God and to love others like he does. And when that happens, the more that happens, these things are going to come naturally, is the idea. So that's what he's saying. This is the one new command. And, and Paul repeats that same idea in, I think, Romans chapter 12. If we love one another, we have fulfilled the law. Why? Well, because I don't need a loss telling me not to steal from you, not to lie to you if I'm loving you, right? So he says if we keep this one command to love each other, we have fulfilled the law. John's just saying it in his, in his way. So there's one command to love each other. Verse 9, anyone who comes to be in the light yet hates his brother is still in the dark. Well, you may say, well, yeah, but I don't hate people. Yeah, maybe not. John tends to write in stark contrast, you know. So he talks about lies, the truth, light and the dark. So this is uh, very much a little bit of hyperbole maybe in his part. We either love people or we hate them. But I, I think we can kind of think of the idea being this way. If I choose not to love that person, there is a sense in which I'm choosing not just to ignore them, but actually to have something more, a little bit more sinister in my heart towards them. And he would call that hate. And so, in any case, he wants us to remember that if we claim to be in the light, we have to love each other. The person loving his brother, verse 10, lives in the light and there is no stumbling block in him. I, I have that idea, stumbling block before him. Why? Because he's in the light. He can see them. All right. He can see the scorpion on the ground and he's not going to step on the dumb thing. The person hating his brother is in the dark and walks in the dark and doesn't see where he is going for the darkness has blinded his eyes. So this is what he's telling us here. True enlightenment comes from walking with Jesus. True enlightenment comes from loving like Jesus. What do we do with this? Let's wrap this up with some application. Out of this passage, I see a few things here. First, keep bringing your sins to God. Keep bringing your sins to God. He will forgive us. We have an advocate with the Father. Um, Ruth Graham Bell told a story. Actually, her husband, Billy Graham, told the story in his book, uh, How to Be Born Again. This reminds us that if, as we walk into the light, we're always going to need more repentance. We're never going to get to the place where, okay, I'm in the light enough that I don't have to confess anymore. Because what light does is expose where we're not light or where we're dirty. Billy Graham wrote, several years ago, I was to be interviewed at my home for a well-known television show. And knowing that it would appear on nationwide television, my wife took great pains to see that everything looked nice. She had vacuumed and dusted and tidied up the whole house, but had gone over the living room with a fine-tooth comb since that's where the interview would be held. We were in place, along with the interviewer, when suddenly the television lights were turned on and we saw cobwebs and dust where we had never seen them before. In the words of my wife, quote, I mean that room was festined with dust and cobwebs which simply did not show up under ordinary light. And the point is, of course, as we come to dwell with Christ more fully in the light, we're going to see our sin. 
And our accuser will tell us, you're not good enough. There's too much between you and God. And we say, no. I have an advocate with the Father who has paid for all my sins, knowing which each one was before ever committed to that. And I come to him and say, Father, forgive me. Keep bringing your sins to God. Second, seek one thing. Seek one thing. You guys remember that the movie came out, I think it was 92, City Slickers, Billy Crystal, and uh, Jack Palance. Jack Palance is this grizzled old cowboy. You know, he leads a dude ranch. And City Slickers, like Billy Crystal, um, who's a guy named Mitch in the movie, they come out, you know, to try to figure out what's wrong with their life, you know, and everything. So they're having this conversation as they're riding horses. And, uh, you know, Mitch is frustrated. He's confused. His life is unfulfilling. And the, the character, Curly, played by Jack Clancy, says, ah, you know, you city folk come and you're always worried about all this different stuff. Says, let me tell you something. You know what the secret to life is? And Bill and Crystal Kirk goes, no, I don't. He's <laughs> like, please tell me. The secret to life is one thing. He says in this real grappling voice. Secret to life is one thing. And Curly looks at him and says, your finger? <laughs> No, one thing, and that's all you have to do. And so the character says, Bill Crystal's character, well, great, what's that one thing? And the response is, that's what you have to figure out. You know what John tells us? In one sense, we don't have to figure that out. The one thing that we have to get right, the one thing that we have to do, the only thing really, is to abide with Christ and let his love flow out of me. That's it. He will take care of the rest. Now, I say that knowing that we may need to put some little flesh in that according to our own lives, right? So the question I want to put before you is, what do you need to do to abide in Christ more fully? And is there a particular way that in your stage of life, in your circle of influence, according to whatever God's resources God has given you, how does he want you to love? Maybe it's a particular person in need, and you're just tired of it. It's messy. They don't seem to change. And you're sick of it. And you're tempted to walk away, inwardly at least, right? Maybe there's a particular person that, you know, God's prompting you to reach out to in some way because they, they need the gospel. They need help. But man, you know, there's fear within me. There's so many things holding me back. What do I say? What are they going to think of me? But love is giving of ourselves, even of our reputation, if need be, for the ultimate good of the other. Maybe there's a certain ministry in the church, a certain way to serve in the community or to the world. And, and you know, you're kind of wired that way, but it's going to take a lot of time and investment and messiness. And it's just easier to cocoon ourselves off a little bit. I don't know what it is for you, but are you willing to ask God that question? Right now today, Lord, show me the one way that you especially want me to love. Last thing. So bring your sin, seek one thing, and then lastly, let us worship Christ together. Let us worship Christ because he is the one who forgives our sin based on what he's done on the cross. That kind of love 
is worthy of a response of us praising him and proclaiming its worth. Let us worship Christ because he is the one who is the advocate for us now. He is the one who is the face of the Father turned towards us. The one who intercedes, mediates between us and the Father, we're told in Hebrews. He is there. He is faithful and just. He loves that role, and he advocates for us on the basis of his justice, what he's done. We can worship him because of that. And lastly, because let's worship Christ because he is the model of how we are to live our lives. Oh, it's true. We need to fill out the specifics. But we see in Jesus Christ the one who is the model of all that we should be, the one who models for us what life is about. I'm going to end with this. On a forgotten country road, there is a field with two horses in it. From a distance, the horses look like any others. But if you look closer, you will notice something quite interesting. One of the horses is blind. The horse's owner had chosen not to put him down. Instead, he built a safe and comfortable barn for him to live in. That alone is pretty amazing. But if you stand in nearby and listen, you will hear the sound of a bell. The sound is coming from the smaller horse in the field. Attached to that horse's halter is a copper-colored bell. It lets the blind friend or blind horse know where the smaller horse is so he can follow. If you take a moment to watch these two horses, you'll see that the horse with the bell is always checking on the blind horse. The blind horse listens for the bell, then he slowly walks to where the other horse is, trusting he will not be led astray. Each evening, the horse with the bell returns to the shelter, shelter of the barn, and on the way, he will occasionally stop and look back. He's making sure that his blind friend isn't too far behind. You know who we are in that story, right? We could have been put down, but instead we are provided for, not only with salvation from what could have happened to us, but we now have someone who has lived a perfect human life and is able to give us direction if we listen and follow.